Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 297, The Hundreds and the Wapentakes. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. Most recently, on the members feed, Dr. Z and I discussed some of the choices that were made and how we produced the show. He answered some questions, and we also briefly talked about how her research work on Portland gang culture bears some weird similarities to Anglo-Saxon honor culture. Basically, it's a lot like hanging out with us at a pub, but without any risk of getting peer pressured into doing karaoke later on. And you can get instant access to that episode and all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Patrick, Jose, and Deborah for signing up already. Recently, we've been speaking a lot about the life of a handful of individuals. Namely, we've been talking about the rulers that have descended from the line of Alfred. And there are a couple reasons for that. The first is the simple fact that by the virtue of how limited literacy was during this era, these people are the lives that we know the most about. The other reason, though, is that the formation of England is very much a story of politics. It was about battles and treaties and alliances. But as is true with every era, life is so much bigger than what we can see going on at the very top of society. And in the 900s, life was changing in Britain, especially life in England. For the upper echelons of society, this change was big and was coming fast. The king had been murdered during a time of turmoil, right as England appeared to be on the precipice of war. And that kindling fire was being passed to the king's younger brother, Adred, a boy who is now being asked to fill the shoes of not just one, but two older brothers, and both of whom had ruled spectacularly and had been cut down in their prime. The fallout from the Feast of St. Augustine would reverberate for years in the halls of the most powerful and wealthy Englishmen. But that wasn't the only change that was taking place on the island. And to be honest, while the nobility get the most press, the comings and goings of their lives only impacted the bulk of the population so much. For the common folk, how the king died and who would replace him in Winchester mattered only so much as it impacted the fortunes of their own regional elites. Edmund's death, and how it came about, would only really change your life if it changed the life of the elderman, the thane, or the churl that you were serving. But changes had been happening all throughout the island, and while they were taking place much more slowly than, say, an assassination, in the end, these changes meant that the world an Anglo-Saxon would have woken up to at the end of the 10th century would be very different than the world that his predecessors woke up to at the beginning of it. And to give you a sense of time and place, these changes first began during the period when Alfred was reigning. But rather than focusing on the kings, as we've been doing for quite some time, we're going to talk about these changes from the perspective of the people who were living through them. So imagine that you're a child living in Apperley at around this time. And imagine that you're the child of a churl, which is a low-level landowner. Well, your father owns some land. And as a result, you're fairly fortunate because it's actually in a nice enough spot. The soil is rich, it's close to the Severn, which provides plenty of nearby water for irrigation, and there are some woodlands in the area which your father and you can go hunting in, provided, of course, that the local nobles give you permission to do so. It's a nice place to grow up. And actually, your family is doing so well that there are some peasants who are working the land for you, one of whom is named Unferth. Now, 
Unferth's connection to the king and the kingdom in general is attenuated at best. For the most part, he interacts with the kingdom through your father. And as a result, he's mostly reliant on your father, the churl, to learn what's happening in the broader political world. Because he, as a landless peasant, doesn't have access to the halls of power. And that means that Unferth doesn't have much, if any, connection to the business of the kingdom. But the thing is, that neither do you or your father. Because while the farm is a nice place to live, it's not exactly cosmopolitan. And the king has never ridden through here. In fact, your father has never even met the king. Nor has he ever visited Winchester, because your father is just a churl. As a result, he's connected to the king and the kingdom through the thing that he serves. Let's call him Wolfhelm. And on the upside, Wolfhelm seems pretty knowledgeable. On occasion, he would arrive and tell your dad about the new laws that the king enacted, and what levies were being assessed, and what taxes would be collected this year, all that kind of stuff. But being a child who was probably more interested in climbing trees than politics, what you might not have realized was that despite sounding like he knew a lot about the king's will, Wolfhelm wasn't really all that connected to the halls of power either. In actual fact, most of what he told your father was coming from Elderman Athelhiga, who he served. And your father told you that he met Elderman Athelhiga once, and that was quite an event. Elderman rarely rubbed elbows with the churls especially churls who just hold a few plots of land and peasants. So that was a big deal for your dad. But while eldermen were quite powerful in relation to churls, their power was dependent on the royal court. And herein lies the great administrative challenge in the time of Alfred. Elderman Athelhiga would have been reliant upon the court to provide him with information on how to enact the king's will and administer his territory. And sometimes messengers would be sent to the eldermen with news, but more often, it was the eldermen themselves who needed to find a way to either join up with the court or hope that the court rode through town and took a meeting with them. Meaning that communicating and enacting the king's wishes in Little Apperley was largely dependent on whether or not Alfred happened to visit Gloucester and whether Athelhiga attended that court when he did and whether any new laws and policies were discussed at that court. And if that happened then it would be up to Athelhiga to enact those wishes and explain them clearly to his thanes, including Wolfhelm. And then your father was dependent on whether or not Wolfhelm properly understood and communicated those wishes to his churls, which of course included your dad. So that meant that if a new law was handed down that related to poor Unferth, who had absolutely no access to court and instead spent his days working in the fields, well, Unferth's understanding of what was expected of him would be entirely dependent on what your father remembered from his conversation with Wolfhelm, which in turn was based on Wolfhelm's memory of what Athelhiga told him, which in turn was based on what Athelhiga remembered from the feast that he attended with Alfred and his court, and it was probably through a haze of booze. You can see how this might get dicey when it comes to matters of justice, can't you? And justice was something that the court was supposed to control. And communicating these laws and the king's desires was a way for the court to be able to delegate some of those responsibilities to the lower orders. As a result of this, you had lesser nobles who might be able to resolve all kinds of disputes without having to ask for the king's attention. And for landless peasants like Unferth, that was probably the most common experience that they had with the king's justice. There's a good chance that you've actually seen your father handle minor matters for Unferth or the other peasants on your family's land. And even larger issues got delegated sometimes. For example, maybe someone stole a belt. 
Well, in that case, maybe the local thane or perhaps even the elderman could handle it. But if you're relying on this crazy game of telephone to enact the laws, then there's a significant risk that some of these things might have gotten lost in translation or misunderstood. And as a result, the laws of one town might look very different from the laws of another town, even though they're both ostensibly part of the same kingdom and enacting the same king's justice. And there's another problem with this system that could arise when larger legal issues arose. For example, maybe there's a land dispute or there's a murder. Well, that might be something that needs the attention of the crown. And that could be a problem because you're an Apperly. If Unferth found himself fingered for murder, it could go one of two ways. Either he could be tried by the local nobles who might not know what the actual laws of the kingdom were, or he could be stuck waiting for God knows how long for the king's court to get close enough to be reached and then be tried there. Not exactly the most efficient way to run a kingdom, but things were changing. Alfred's plan to turn Wessex into a giant fortress had led to a new network of urban centers that now dotted the landscape. While the construction of these burrs were fundamentally a military decision, the impact of those fortresses extended far beyond the original intent. Much like the ancient Roman fortresses, these burrs were often constructed near pre-existing towns. And like those Roman fortresses, these towns exploded in size and economic power following the construction of the burr. Suddenly, there was a new concentration of wealth and more people and an increased demand for well, pretty much everything. Furthermore, because these burrs were walled in, they became highly desirable real estate in a time that was bristling with Viking raiders. So as you got older, you would have grown accustomed to seeing more and more people relocating to be closer to Gloucester, which had been turned into a burr. The wealthier and luckier ones would have actually moved within the walls. And this wasn't just the local nobility. Some of the more successful merchants were moving in there too. And eventually, your elderman would have moved the local marketplace within the walls of the burr. That would make it easier for him to regulate and tax trade. And he would have wanted to do that because trade was absolutely booming. And it wasn't long before Thane Wolfhelm came by to tell you that the crown had passed a new law. And this law mandated that any trade above a nominal value had to take place within that marketplace in the presence of the reeve. And so, traveling to Gloucester became a regular task for your family. And as you grew into adulthood, you saw during your occasional trips to market that Gloucester had turned into a full-blown boomtown. What you might not have realized, though, is that this was happening all over. These burrs were already well-placed throughout the kingdom. And with the concentration of wealth and trade, not to mention the protection that they offered, they soon became central to the lives of many of the people who were living in southern Britain. And because you managed to escape all manner of deadly childhood diseases and accidents, you eventually became an adult. And now, it's not your father who's running the farm in Apperley. It's you. And while Unferth is still there, bless him, he's a bit too old for the fields these days. So now it's his son, Unferth's son of Unferth, who's tending the crops. But although there's some degree of continuity, life for you is quite different from the days of your father. For one, Alfred's burrs had dramatically remade the landscape of Wessex. When your father was growing up, and actually even when you were growing up, most people didn't have close contact with urban centers. And actually, the fact that you grew up within a day's walk of Gloucester gave your family quite an advantage back when you were a kid. 
since they had better access to markets than many of the other low-ranking churls. But all that had changed. With the spread of the Burrs and the prominent position that they took in the economic structure of the South, by the time that you inherited your father's lands, most of the kingdom's population was living within a day's walk of a Burr. Suddenly, nearly everyone had some degree of access to urban life. And the new King Edward appears to have wanted to take advantage of that. Because pretty soon, your local thing gave you the news that the kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons was being reorganized. Now, Apperley would be part of a shire. It would be called Gloucestershire. And sitting at the center of this shire was the burr that you had already become quite familiar with over the years. Gloucester. There, the eldermen would rule. It would be the administrative center for life in the region. If you needed to establish your rights to some land, you would go to Gloucester. If you wanted to work out a dispute between you and your thane, Gloucester would probably be where you needed to do it. If you were accused of breaching the king's peace by kicking the hell out of that neighbor that you hate, well, your thane might handle it, but there's a good chance that you'd be dragged to Gloucester to settle the matter. Or maybe you needed to sell some cattle, or buy a horse, or purchase a new slave. Off to Gloucester you'd go. Small local stuff might be taking place in your village, but the serious business of life was being handled at your local burr. And this was happening all over the kingdom. And the changes that this reorganization brought about went well beyond simply moving royal centers and boundaries. They completely shifted the way that the crown interacted with its most powerful subjects. See, back in the days of your father, the influence that the king had on the daily lives of his subjects was capricious and sporadic. The councils in which the business of the kingdom was discussed centered on the kingdom and his court, and they were held wherever the king decided to hold them which meant that access to the king, even for the most powerful members of society, involved a lot of waiting and hoping that he'd come through. Either that, or it involved an absurdly long cross-country trip to get to him. And this structure wasn't just inconvenient for the eldermen. It also meant that the king was at risk of losing influence over outlier territories that he never visited. After all, why answer the call of a king who really doesn't do anything for you? This organizational system was old, but it wasn't exactly efficient, and it was part of what kept the kingdoms of the Heptarchy rather small, and largely limited by the amount of ground that the king and his court could cover in a year. But the burrs and the shires that surrounded them were changing things. Throughout the kingdom, it became standard for powerful landowners within the shires to hold twice-yearly meetings at the central burr. These meetings would be presided over by the local eldermen and the local bishop, and they would act as the king's representative at the council. And once convened, the council would deliver the crown's edicts, announce any new legal codes, discuss appointments, new levies, and do all the other important affairs of state. Furthermore, any significant lawsuits would also be held during these councils. So in this way, the king was able to have twice-yearly councils with all his most powerful subjects, even though he wasn't there. And these councils were regularly scheduled, so they could be relied upon. And that would have lent a degree of order to Anglo-Saxon life that hadn't existed previously. Consider what an enormous shift that is. Should you require it, you had twice yearly access to the king's justice on dates that could be planned around. Any important announcements that came through weren't coming down to you through a strange game of telephone that likely started with a feast. Instead, 
your thane would have been present for the reading of the king's commands. And those commands were likely largely identical to what the other shires were being told as well. And then carrying out the king's will throughout the shire were the shire reeves, the sheriffs. Suddenly, the governing of the kingdom was becoming methodical and reliable, and the king was able to rule over a far larger territory, because even if he didn't come through Gloucestershire this year, the impact of his rule was still being felt. The king's justice was still enforced, and just about everyone was within a day's travel of one of his power centers, even out in the new territories like East Anglia and the five boroughs. So even though you wouldn't have been influential enough to have attended one of these big twice-yearly councils, after all, you were just a churl of Apperley. Well, despite that, the changes that were occurring during the reign of Edward would have still had a significant impact upon your life. Actually, this was even having an effect upon Unferth's son of Unferth, because now legal matters could be heard at regular intervals. So if Unferth's son of Unferth was charged with pig theft, that case could be dismissed in a fraction of the time that it would have taken Unferth the Elder's murder charge to get dismissed. Furthermore, the king's laws were now getting regularly updated, and they were being enforced by the king's own officer, the Shire Reeve. And that was a position that would come to take on increasing degrees of responsibilities as the decades went on. But for the most part, that's kind of how life went for you. Twice a year, new edicts would be delivered to you from your thane. If you had a dispute with someone and it was serious, you might ride out to Gloucester and have the elderman or the council decide it. And even though you likely never saw King Edward, you still felt his presence. And by extension, you knew that he was taking an interest in the governing of Apperley and of Gloucestershire in general. And the years went on, and you got older. Inevitably, too soon probably, your child took over the farm, and Umfirth, son of Umfirth, also became too old to work in the field, and he was replaced by his son, Unferth. You're all Englishmen now, and you're being ruled by Alfred's grandsons, and these grandsons were ambitious. England which had now expanded into Northumbria, the Five Boroughs, East Anglia, and even portions of Cornwall, was covering a territory that far eclipsed the kingdom of your childhood. But ruling over such a vast amount of territory required a greater deal of bureaucracy than was needed back when you were young. Alfred was able to get by simply by having a mobile court. Edward was able to handle the administration of his larger kingdom through his shires. But this new England was gargantuan. And while having shires operate as the main political block of the kingdom was better than what had come before, these shires often consisted of over a million acres of land. That's a lot of territory to govern. And with the increasing complexity of English life, it was becoming clear that the government needed to find a way to keep up. Otherwise, the gears of government would grind to a halt. And for a monarch ruling over a large kingdom containing a wide variety of ethnicities and a bunch of bloodthirsty rival dynasties... That could be a dangerous thing. And the bureaucratic solution that they found for this problem began in Wessex, but it would soon spread into England as a whole. What they decided to do is form new subdivisions within the shires. These subdivisions were based not on their proximity to a burr, but instead on the hides of land that they covered. And the fact that they focused on the hides tells us some things, because a hide was the amount of land necessary to support a family. In fact, the word itself derives from haiwan, which was the Anglo-Saxon word for family. 
And while the size of a height of land wasn't perfectly uniform, in general, a height of land, and thus the amount of land needed to support a family, was about 30 modern acres. So it was determined that rather than trying to administer justice broadly over a million or more acres of land, the shires would be made up of smaller units that consisted of just 100 hides of land each. You know, give or take, depending on how easy the plot was to measure. This was before the invention of lasers. And they called this unit the hundreds. And this meant that your local governing unit would be home to approximately 100 families and would be spread out across about 3,000 acres. Furthermore, within each hundred, the idea was that there would be a church, a major estate, preferably a royal estate, a marketplace, and a place for justice to be carried out. And when they're talking about justice here, they're not talking about a court. They're talking about a place for executions. And sometimes within these hundreds, there wasn't a church or a royal estate, but there pretty much was always an execution spot and a regulated marketplace because death and taxes. But you get the idea here. The kingdom was the biggest political institution. Then you had the shires, which governed over large swaths of land. And then you had the hundreds that operated within the shires. And it might help to think of them as villages. But the important aspect of the hundreds isn't the size of their land apportionment, nor is it the standardization of marketplaces and other institutions. The most important part of the hundreds is also the main reason why they were arranged is their governmental structure. See, the decision to arrange this new bureaucratic division into a hundred hides of land wasn't because it would look nice on a map. It was because it would make governing easier, because the central aspect of these hundreds was the hundred court. This was where those who lived within the hundred would gather, and they would handle the matters that directly impacted the hundred. So minor disputes would be sorted out there, and so could smaller legal matters. In fact, the hundreds were specifically charged with handling cases that involved theft or a breach of the peace. Presumably, the eldermen were sick and tired of having to deal with minor misdemeanors like that, and so they were delegating them out. Taxes would also be assessed and collected at the hundred level, and then they would be handed over to the Shire Reeve. Similarly, when the king sought to replenish the furred, it was at the hundreds where that demand of levies would be issued to the public. And the hundred court met every four weeks. That meant that your child, despite just being a minor landowner, had direct access to the king's will and actually was regularly meeting with one of the king's officials. He also was aware of the goings-on of the kingdom in general on a monthly basis. That was a far cry from what you had, where you had to hear it from your thane after one of his twice-yearly meetings at Gloucester. And as far beyond what your father had, He had to wait to hear along the grapevine on the rare occasion that Alfred happened to pass through the area. But here your child was, getting what are basically monthly check-ins. In just three generations, the relationship between the crown and the people had changed dramatically. For the common folk, suddenly they had direct contact with the king's representatives on a monthly basis, even in little old Apperley. In fact, for the first time in history, the line of Unferth actually had a chance of hearing from a king's representative. Unferth, son of Unferth, son of Unferth, must have been so proud. Furthermore, because of this reorganization, the hundreds had access to regulated marketplaces within their own communities. So they didn't have to go all the way out to Gloucester just to go and buy a bag of wheat. 
They also had access to a quick judicial system to handle the most common types of cases. And a system of escalation to the Shire or even in the King's Court should something more serious happen. This was a monumental shift in how governing was carried out. And it happened remarkably quickly. Partially because the Burrs enabled the change. But also likely because that change was absolutely necessary if Alfred's grandsons wished to continue to rule over England. Because the transition from Wessex to England wasn't simply a matter of changing names and expanding territory. It was also an issue of organization and bureaucracy and demonstrating to these new subjects that the power of the crown was omnipresent. And it wasn't just a powerful thing to be respected, but it was also an institution that gave you something in return. And it comes as no surprise that this governmental structure, the hundreds, was instituted at around the time of Athelstan, and it quickly spread out of Wessex and into the rest of England. The shires south of the Humber were all broken up into hundreds. And as for Northumbria, well, they adopted it too. But because they're Northumbria, they gave it a different name. Whereas the Anglo-Saxons of the South named their communities after the number of families that were a part of them, the Northumbrians went a different route. They called it the Wapentake, a word that was derived from the Scandinavian term for the taking of weapons. Because in Northumbria, if you're going to hold court, you better hope everyone checks their knives at the door. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, pretty much everything. And you can find links to all the communities in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>